I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, our interviewee is Marion Keyes. Born in Limerick in 1963, she trained in law and accountancy and came to writing almost by accident in the early 90s, publishing her first novel, Watermelon, in 1995. She has since become one of Ireland's most successful authors, selling more than 35 million copies of her 13 novels to date. Keyes is beloved to her readers for her wit, her conversational prose style, and for the unflinching honesty with which she approaches her subjects, which include depression, infidelity, domestic abuse, and the glass ceiling. Her latest work, The Break, follows a married couple who opt to temporarily pause their relationship, with unexpected consequences. She joined Laura Powell in the Telegraph Studios in central London. Welcome to the Telegraph Books podcast, Marianne Keys. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start today with your childhood. Uh, you grew up in Dublin in the late 1960s and 70s, and you recently described yourself as an utter catastrophist when you were a child. And also you said that books helped you in, with your anxieties. What did you mean by that? I was a worrier from the word go. I don't know why. I mean, I was the eldest child and... My dad was a big worrier, like both of my parents were really. And I think I just internalized it very young. What did you worry about? Absolutely everything. Um, being late. Um, the thought of being late made me feel like I was going to die. Um, being late for school was the worst thing ever. Um, being in the wrong, making mistakes. And so when I found books and I started reading Eden, Enid Blyton's at about six, like the relief, <laughs> um, you know, and I would have happily spent sunny days in my bedroom um, reading. You know, my mother was always there, you know, trying to make me go out and play. But go out and play was just such a scary prospect. I wanted to stay in in the shade with my books. So you were an introvert from from. Oh, I was, I was. And like books were my first painkiller and my first addiction. And they're still a great escape. But you said something else as well that implies that you were a little bit of a rebel as well when you were younger. And you described your first writing experience of writing an essay about the Catholic Church when you were 15. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. That was interesting. Yeah. You see, it was so weird because it was like being brought up where the country, the entire country is a cult. And there were no dissenting voices at all. Everything, the schooling, the parents, the whole social structure was about, you know, pushing those messages. And 
you know, about the age of 14 or 15, like I just knew that so much of it was nonsense. And um, one day in English, we were told to write an essay. I can't remember what the subject was. But yeah, I wrote one that I thought was fabulously free thinking and daring. You know, it was very tame, really, but it was critical of the nuns who um, were teaching us. My English teacher wasn't a nun. She was a lay teacher. So I thought she'll get it. She'll be on my side. (laughs) And uh, no, when the essays came back, I was kept behind at the end and I was scolded and shamed so much that I just thought, oh, okay. I thought I had a little gift for this, but uh, clearly I don't. Did it put you off writing or the opposite? Did you? Oh, no, put me off. Oh, Oh, no, 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 put me off. No, um... Like there's a there's a platform in me, a very large one where shame lands. I'm very easily sh- and not so much anymore now, mind you. But back then and for a long, long time, um, you know, we, the entire country, we were especially the women, we were programmed to be shamed. Um, it was a great way of kind of raising a biddable force of women. You did, but you don't feel like that today, presumably. No, I don't. But it's been. It's it's been a long road. And, you know, I lived in London for 11 years and I think being away from Ireland gave me great perspective on on it. Yeah, it made it a lot easier to articulate what I see as the hypocrisies. So thinking about that, one topical issue in Ireland this year is obviously abortion, which comes up in your new novel, The Break. Given that the referendum on legalising abortion hadn't happened in Ireland back when you were writing the book, how much did you keep that in mind? And in particular, how much did you keep in mind the reaction of people reading it back at home? It was something I thought about. It was something I was afraid of writing because I was afraid of the amount of hate that other high-profile pro-choice women have got. Um... And I wasn't the only one who was afraid. Like my poor mother was really worried about me. Um, as it happened, um, there hasn't been that much of a backlash, which is which is very encouraging. Um, but I felt it was the right thing to do to write a very factual, dispassionate account of what it is like to be a young woman facing a crisis pregnancy in Ireland and having to leave the country to get health care in another jurisdiction and just how how crazy it is. We'll come back to talk more about that and the break later on but today we're also here to discuss the three books that mean the most to you. What's the first one that you've chosen? It's called The Surface Breaks and it's by a young Irish writer called Louise O'Neill and she has This is her fourth book and she's had a a stellar career. And this one, The Surface Breaks, is a it's a retelling of The Little Mermaid. And it's beautiful because so much of it is set underwater. Like, the you know, the descriptions are gorgeous and the colours described are beautiful. Um, And then there is such rage at the heart of it, um, at how women are objectified by the male gaze, you know, how how. The power imbalance is so weighted in favour of men. Um, and unlike her first two books, Breaking the Surface ends on a very empowered, very hopeful 
note. We're going to hear a reading now from Marianne's first book, The Surface Breaks, by Louise O'Neill. You are not ready, my child. Be patient. Your time will come. I have been listening to my grandmother say these things to me for as long as I can remember. But when will I be ready? I kept asking her. When, grandmother? When? When? And she told me to be quiet. It's for your own good, she said. You know how your father feels about the human world. Do not let him catch you speaking in such a fashion. I have never been allowed to talk much. My father doesn't care for curious girls, so I bit my tongue and I waited. The days of my childhood kept turning over, dissolving like sea foam on the crest of the waves. I've been counting them. The days and the nights, the weeks, the months, the years. I have been waiting for this day. And now, at last, it has arrived. I am 15 and I shall be allowed to break the surface, catch my first glimpse of the world above us. Maybe there I will find some answers. I have so many questions, you see. I have spent my years swallowing them down, burning bitter at the back of my throat. Happy birthday, my beloved Mjögen, Grandmother Thalassa says, placing a wreath of lilies on my head. I am sitting on a throne carved from coral, staring at my reflection in the cracked mirror in front of me. It is a relic from a ship that was wrecked two years ago. The Rosalcus rose to the surface to sing the sailors to a watery grave, stuffing death into their bloated lungs. They sing so sweetly, the Salcas do. They sing for revenge for all that has been inflicted upon them. That was a reading from The Surface Breaks by Louise O'Neill. Going back to your early years, so you grew up in Cork, then you went to university in, in Dublin. Yeah. And then you moved to London. What was it that sort of made you leave Ireland back then? Oh, a lot of things. Okay, so I got my degree um, in law and this was in 1984 and Ireland was going through one of its many, many, many recessions and um, and there was no work. Um, I needed to get apprenticed as a lawyer and that wasn't happening. So, um, but it was other things like Ireland really functioned as a theocracy at the time. It was such a claustrophobic society. Um, and London just seemed so alluring. Like it was so near and yet so different. So give me a bit of a glimpse of your life back then in those days. Was it all sort of parties and Well, it kind of was, yeah. Um, I was living in a squat on the 21st floor of a tower block in Hackney with my gay flatmate. And I was working in a restaurant called the Video Cafe and I used to go to um, clubs like Heaven. Older people will remember these. I remember yeah. Heaven. <laughs> and yeah, like it was late nights and, you know, sleeping in until five in the evening. And You're a good dancer. I, I was then. Yeah, like, I mean, it was really, it was great fun and we had enough money. Well, obviously we did if we weren't paying rent and um, it was Completely irresponsible. And I think everybody should have a time like that in their lives. You started writing then when you were in your early 30s. And that coincided with a more difficult period when you were went to um, rehab for alcoholism. At what, what, what stage did you start writing and how did that, um, what was the relationship with that in that particular period of your life? Um, I started writing short stories about four months before I went into rehab. And it was... A time when just it felt like my life was completely folding in on itself. I mean, I drank a lot as far as I was concerned, but I 
only drank that way because I felt very depressed. And and as soon as my life got better, I'd stop drinking. And I didn't make the connection that actually it was the other way around. That like, you know, my life was terrible because I drank alcoholically. And I I had no hope that things were ever going to get better. And I read a short story in a magazine and something about it spoke to me because it was fun. It was irreverent and it was chatty. And just a voice in my head said, you could do something like that. And and I wrote a short story there and then and uh, wrote four more short stories, crashed and burned, went to rehab, came out, decided I was going to try to be a writer. Did the two, was there a relationship between the two? Was it something that you were looking forward to writing when you came out? I think when I came out, I was looking for a different way to live. Um, I wanted to be more true to myself. I wanted to treat myself with kindness. You know, the first kind thing I could do was stop drinking. And I knew that I had enjoyed writing those short stories. I thought, I mean, I was full of hope and a feeling that anything was possible because it kind of was, you know, to if, to be able to stop drinking was so enormous that I sort of felt other things, other good things could happen too. So I sent the short stories off to a publisher in Ireland and I said that I had started work on a novel, but I hadn't and I wasn't going to because I just thought, I just thought, who could be patient for that long? You know, that novels take so long to write. I just thought I'd never be able to to stick with it for that long. And they wrote back and said, can we see what you've written of this novel? And instead of panicking and deciding to just forget about it, I thought, look, what's to be lost? I wrote four chapters in a week of what became my wow. first book, Watermelon. But the thing is, I think anybody's first book even if they're not aware of it, it's percolating inside there. I had a computer at work, so I used to go into the office an hour before I started work and stay late in the evenings and use their word processor and uh, did it then and sent it off. And what did the sense of panic spur you on? Completely. Panic is a fabulous thing. Fear is a marvellous motivator because it meant I couldn't overthink anything. I could barely think anything. And, you know, the funny thing is that first book, Watermelon, was by far the easiest one to write. We'll pause there and talk about your second novel that you've chosen today to bring with you. Um, This is a novel called Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons. Why did you choose that book? Because it was the first book I read that made me scream with laughter. Um, I was so shocked by how funny it was. Um, and I didn't even realise when I was reading it. I read it when I was about, I don't know, 24 or 25. I didn't realise that it was a parody of, you know, D.H. Lawrence style rural uh, romance sort of things. We're going to hear a reading now. Mrs Smiling was awaiting her in the drawing room overlooking the river. She was a small Irish woman of 26 years with a fair complexion, large grey eyes and a little crooked nose. She had two interests in life. One was the imposing of reason and moderation into the bosoms of some 15 gentlemen of birth and fortune who were madly in love with her and who had flown to such remote places as John Songla Lake Lumba Lumba and the Quanwatans because of her refusal to marry them. She wrote to them all once a week. 
And they, as her friends knew to their cost, for she was ever reading aloud long, boring bits from their letters, wrote to her. These gentlemen, because of the hard work they did in savage foreign parts and of their devotion to Mrs Smiling, were known collectively as Mary's pioneers O, a quotation from the spirited poem by Walt Whitman. Mrs Smiling's second interest was her collection of brasiers and her search for the perfect one. She was reputed to have the largest and finest collection of these garments in the world. It was hoped that on her deathbed it would be left to the nation. That was a reading from Cold Comfort Farm. So we were talking about Watermelon, your first yeah. novel. And um, for the first three years, you wrote and you did a full-time job as well yeah. at the same time. But then you became a full-time writer. Yes. Was it just amazing being able to write full-time all day? It sounds like the dream. Well, in theory, yeah. I understand now why peop- writers talk about, you know, jumping to their feet and hearing down the stairs when they hear the postman. It's just very... It was much easier to discipline myself when I only had two hours a day. Um, When you've eight, it's a lot harder. I mean, everyone says this and I shouldn't complain because I'm so lucky that it is my full time job. But um, I'm immensely lazy and I'm so easily distractible. And like what distracts you? Twitter, mostly. My tablet is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, So what do you do to try and discipline yourself? I make a bargain with myself every morning and I ask myself to write an hour. And that makes it manageable. Do your novels all feel very different when you're writing them? Do you, or do you, is the routine quite similar for, between each one? The last couple of ones have been fairly regular. Um, no, but for a long time I used to write in bed. You know, and in my younger days, I, I was far able to work for far longer. You know, I was really unwell with kind of rickety mental health a few years ago. And even though I feel really well now, one of the kind of side effects is that I get tired so much more quickly. I mean, that could be just my age as well. Um, but going back to that period, I mean, I think, am I right in thinking the novel you wrote during that period was The Mystery of Mercy Close? Yeah. How do you feel now when you go back and read that novel? I mean, can you still feel that period through that novel? I can. I can. I mean, I have never used any of my novels as catharsis for anything that I have felt or gone gone through, um, except for that one. Um, When I wrote How Helen Feels, that's how I felt. And I was trying to explain it to both myself and to the people around me. The depression was absolutely nothing like the way it had been described to me previously, that it wasn't a feeling of sorrow It was a feeling, I mean, of fear and dislocation, a feeling that I didn't belong in the world. So by able, you know, by giving those feelings to Helen, it was, it was both a relief and an act of defiance. Um, And the other thing I can't believe is how there is a plot in it that actually makes some sort of sense. No, it's it's a fabulous novel. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks. but, But looking back... I mean, this was a number of years ago. Does it feel like you're, you're a different person now, the same person? Or can you still sort of remember quite vividly what that period was like? The funny thing is, um, I feel happier and more capable of joy now than I did before I got ill. Um, those feelings, I really 
don't think about them at all, which is not the way I used to be. I was very much kind of like, we can't shut the door on anything. We have to incorporate it into our present. Now I just think I feel great today or I feel well today and I'm not going to sully it by remembering those feelings. Now and again, usually when I've had like, you know, if I've had a shock, like my dad hasn't been well and that really spun me into um, a state of mind where I felt very um, spun out. I can't describe it. Like I was dreaming, a kind of a surreal, like being in a surreal grey mist. And that was the way that I had felt then all the time. And it was really horrible to be reminded of it. And it was a good lesson to me that like when I when I receive a shock, this is how I'm going to feel. And have you got any strategies or can you ever ensure against that developing into such a, a deep, dark stage of depression as you had in that period? I think one of the things that I still find very hard, and I, but it's necessary, is to just to say no to things. You know, if something like that impacts, if I start overloading myself with more stress, it's going to end badly. And it's hard, I think, if you've been unwell and then you're well again. People don't make allowances that you might slip back. You know, they're like, ah, grand, you're better now. That's great. Now, business as usual. And there'd be no more of that depression nonsense. You're fixed now. It's fine. Um, People don't want to hear because it's too scary or it's too tedious. They think I've gone through it once with her. I'm not going through it again. And so if I say, look, I'm going to have to bow out of tonight or tomorrow or whatever, because I'm not feeling so good. You know, I sometimes get responses from people where they are resentful. And I can't change that. That's their right. But ultimately, I've got to, what's the word? Listen to how, uh, listen to what I'm telling myself. You know, at the end of the day, I'm the only one who can protect myself. Absolutely. And now, I mean, it's a few years on. Do you think the conversation's changed a little bit? Because I do. It seems like it's so much less taboo and there's almost like a community talking about it, which is so wonderful. There's so much has come on. Yeah. Like when I first realised that things were very, very bad for me, I I used to write a monthly newsletter on my uh, website. And when I realised that kind of the wheels had come off, I just wrote a very quick, you know, four line newsletter saying, you know, I'm suffering really badly from depression and you know, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't think, I'm full of fear. I'm going to kind of take time out from here for a while. Yeah, I, um, a hack in Ireland called Mary Carr wrote um, a, oh, you know, an opinion piece about, you know, how she was tired of me and my sad stories. How could I be depressed when I had a handsome husband and a good income? And yeah, basically, if I uh, if I wanted to go off and have depression, do it on my own time and, and not be boring the likes of her with it. You know, and that was that was written by her. It was published in a newspaper. Everybody thought that was it. I mean, that was eight years ago. Like, it wasn't that long ago. It seems absurd that something like that could be published so, yeah. quite so recently. How did it yeah. make you feel reading that? At the time, I didn't care because um, I was so... She was the least of my worries. But I did remember thinking... This is really unfair on other people who are feeling mentally ill because it kind of it shut down any entitlement. You know, if somebody thought, oh, my God, I have the full use of my limbs Mm. and I have a healthy baby and I have a roof over my head. 
I am not allowed to feel this way. I, I am not allowed to feel like I'm losing my mind or like I'm going crazy. Whereas if the illness was a physical one like cancer, nobody would say, you have a handsome husband. How dare you get cancer? And, and you know, how dare you go on about it? Um, like since then, I it's a hard one to describe. I feel like she was very wrong, that she damaged a lot of people by saying it. Like me, I'm fine. But other people, and I think she kind of set back the discussion in Ireland a good bit. It just meant that nobody else was able and to be And it's also open. just snacks of misunderstanding and not fully quite appreciating what it is. And what's wonderful yes. about your yeah. books and journalism and just, you know, everything that's going on at the moment in the current conversation is that people are sharing their experiences. Yes. And I think people who don't suffer from that or live with that, yeah. should I say, that's what they need to fully be able to empathise. Yeah. Yeah, that it has nothing to do with circumstances. Precisely. The way cancer has nothing to do with circumstances. They're both illnesses that do not care. Well, on that subject, right. let's move on to your third book, which yes. is, um, it's not like relief, I'm afraid. It's a beautiful book, but yeah. it's, it's um, tell me a little bit about it. It's The Choice by Edith Eager, who is a, an Auschwitz survivor. And it is the most incredible book on forgiveness that I've ever read. And she was a young Hungarian girl. She was 14 and she and her sister um, were sent to Auschwitz. And you would think that it would be, I mean, it was a grueling story in so many ways, but there was humour in it and like the relationship between the two sisters. And and then it's about some, it's, 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 she, after the war, she, um, she moves to the United States and she, she gets married and she's living as some kind of, she, uh, she's living as a housewife who has post, um, traumatic, traumatic stress disorder, undiagnosed. And she describes her life and her relationship with her husband, the flashbacks, her relationship with her children. She eventually goes on and trains and becomes a psychiatrist who ends up helping veterans of combat who are like incredibly scarred. And it takes her decades and decades and decades, but she eventually goes back to Germany and goes to, forgive me, I can't remember the name of the place, but she sleeps in Himmler's bed in, yeah. And it is such a powerful story of of the the ability to forgive no matter how how extreme your suffering has been at the hands of another person she tells it so well every single part of it matters and it is you'll cry you'll be uplifted it's incredible we're going to hear a little bit from the book now even before the moment of our separation my most intimate memory of my mother though i treasure it is full of sorrow and loss. We're alone in the kitchen, where she's wrapping up the leftover strudel that she made with dough I watched her cut by hand and drape like heavy linen over the dining room table. Read to me, she says, and I fetch the worn copy of Gone with the Wind from her bedside table. We have read it through once before. Now we have begun again. I pause over the mysterious inscription written in English on the title page of the translated book. It's in a man's handwriting, but not my father's. All that my mother will say 
is that the book was a gift from a man she met who she worked with at the foreign ministry before she knew my father. We sit in straight-backed chairs near the wood stove. I read this grown-up novel fluently, despite the fact that I am only nine. I'm glad you have brains, because you have no looks, she's told me more than once, a compliment and a criticism intertwined. She can be hard on me, but I savour this time. When we read together, I don't have to share her with anyone else. I sink into the words and the story and the feeling of being alone in a world with her. Scarlet returns to Tara at the end of the war to learn her mother is dead and her father is far gone in grief. As God is my witness, Scarlet says, I'm never going to be hungry again. My mother has closed her eyes and leans her head against the back of the chair. I want to climb into her lap. I want to rest my head against her chest. I want her to touch her lips to my hair. Tara, she says. America. Now, that would be a place to see. I wish she would say my name with the same softness she reserves for a country where she's never been. All the smells of my mother's kitchen are mixed up for me with the drama of hunger and feast. Always, even in the feast, that longing. I don't know if the longing is hers or mine or something we share. We sit there with the fire between us. When I was your age, she begins, now that she is talking, I'm afraid to move, afraid she won't continue if I do. When I was your age, the babies slept together and my mother and I shared a bed. One morning I woke up because my father was calling to me, Ilonka, wake up your mother, she hasn't made breakfast yet or laid out my clothes. I turned to my mother next to me under the covers, but she wasn't moving. She was dead. She has never told me this before. I want to know every detail about this moment when a daughter woke beside a mother she had already lost. I also want to look away. It is too terrifying to think about. When they buried her that afternoon, I thought they'd put her in the ground alive. That night, father told me to make the family supper. So that's what I did. I wait for the rest of the story. I wait for the lesson at the end or the reassurance. Bedtime is all my mother says. She bends to sweep the ash under the stove. That was a reading from Marianne Keyes' second pick today, The Choice. So your latest novel is called A Break and it's an absolutely brilliant story of a husband and wife who choose to put their marriage temporarily on hold. Tell us a little bit about what you were trying to say about that subject. Well, I tried to write about two believable people. I didn't want to write a cliched midlife crisis novel about a ridiculous man who becomes a figure of fun and who runs off with a 19-year-old Russian, you know, um, and buys a red Ferrari. I wanted to write about a man that people could have sympathy with. So how hard was it? I mean, it sounds like you you liked both characters equally, but how hard yeah. was it to portray him fairly as well? Well, I went on a, on a, on a kind of a journey with him, if you'll pardon the word. Um, and in, in the earlier parts of the book, he was far more of a baddie. And just as I kind of got more immersed and spent more and more time with them and, and I thought about my marriage and how if he did or does leave me, I know that it wouldn't have been an easy decision for him. Um, and that informed me eventually. You know, I take a long time to write my books and this is why, because I want to get to the truth of the matter. So I wanted to write honestly 
about about when you when you're going to hurt somebody you love. Did you have lots of discussions then about that with your husband? At home? I did a bit. Yeah, I do because it was interesting to get his take on it. Things like, I mean, he said like when he's away, he when he's away from me how he misses me. But there are things that he really likes, like the fact that he is only responsible for himself. You know, that it's not just him having to make sure that I'm okay and that I'm ready and, you know, that we're both ready to leave at the time. That kind of wonderful freedom of just swinging out the door. And funny enough, like when he goes away now, I often go away as well on my own or, or with my sisters or something like that. And I understand what he means. Like I went to Istanbul with my sister a couple of years ago and one afternoon I was just walking around the city on my own and I felt young and free and it was a nice feeling, you know, and I didn't want to never go back to my marriage, but it was nice to remember those parts of me and and to realise that those parts of me are still available, even though I'm in a couple. So are you saying that this kind of break could actually work in real life then? I think it very much depends on the person and how mature they are. I personally would find it extremely difficult because I'm very jealous. But having said that, like himself is, he's a good man and he wouldn't, I don't think he would propose going off for six months on a whim. I think that he would only kind of reach that conclusion that that was what he needed to do after a lot of soul searching. So if he was in that much pain or discomfort or confusion, I think if you love somebody, you've got to listen to that. Like you've got to take it seriously. And I'm not saying I would be happy about it. I I wouldn't be. Um, And personally, I can't imagine wanting to take a break myself because, you know, I am just the thought of having to take off my clothes in front of another man ever again. Like, it's just, no, no, like, no. So he wasn't uh, nervous when you started writing the book and thought, oh, no, is, is she hinting here? Uh, I don't think he was. No, the funny thing is he's the one that goes off. He climbs mountains for uh, a pastime. So that involves him going off for a couple of weeks at a time in small groups, which sometimes include the women's. And, uh, you know, from time to time, I do worry that because I, you know, the highest I ever get is when I put on my high heels. Like I hate anything that isn't entirely level. I do wonder, what if you met somebody whose passion was as, you know, for mountaineering was as strong as his? Like, would they? But the thing is, we can't legislate for these things. You know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. If you did have six months and it just had a break, I don't mean in terms of just yeah. the relationship side, but just in terms of the freedom of writing and everything, what would you spend those six months doing, do you think? Oh, my God, I've never even considered that. Do you know, I mean, the thing is, I feel like I never get enough time to to actually write because there's always so many other things to do with the job. The idea of going away to some sort of a remote log cabin in Finland near lakes and oh, trees and writing. I'd love that. Wouldn't the solitude of that drive you crazy? I mean, you seem like such a lovely chatty person. I do like the chat. I mean, the thing is, I am actually an introvert. Um, I, I did a quiz in Cosmopolitan and it said <laughs> I, I'm an acute introvert. Um, so I 
I I don't do so well at parties and stuff like that, but I love the one-on-ones. I love a good chat about something meaningful. But the meaningful thing can be the weather, you know, or the football at the weekend. The thing that I will always find difficult is parties. Small talk, I actually believe, damages the immune system. I think it is so bad for us. It, it, it is so depleting. It actually makes us sick. So I just wanted to return to your writing method for a moment. And one of the really lovely things about your writing is the dialogue. It's just so bubbly and sort of, it's, oh. you know, it feels really alive. I was wondering, do you read aloud your passages when you're writing to get the dialogue just I, spot on? I don't. I don't that. And maybe I should. Um, but I think this is a strange thing to say, but I think living in Ireland makes it very easy to write believable dialogue because Irish people pride themselves on their conversational skills. People speak differently, like words are squandered in a beautiful way. And the smallest conversational interactions, people kind of take pride in them. They're not just going to convey information in a factual way. They'll put a spin on it. They'll throw some colour into it. And that's exactly what you do in your novels. Uh, The writing and especially the dialogue is just so beautiful. Um, But you also have these really intricate plots as well. Um, And on which subject, before we close today, we'd love to hear you reading from The Break. Do you have a passage prepared? So this is from chapter one of The Break. Myself and Hugh, I say, we're taking a break. A city with fancy food sort of a break? Maura narrows her eyes. Or a Rihanna sort of a break? Well, she presses her case. Is it the city with fancy food break? No, it's the Rihanna kind. You've got to be joking me. Because Rihanna is what? 22 and you're not 22. It's imperative to shut her down before she utters my age. I don't know how I got to be 44. Clearly I'd my eye off the ball. But a bit late to the party, I'm trying to airbrush away all references to it. It's not just the fear of dying and worse, the fear of becoming jowly. It's because I work in PR, a dynamic, youthful sector, which does not value the less young amongst us. I've bills to pay. I'm simply being practical here. That was Marianne Keyes reading from her absolutely fabulous new novel, The Break. Marianne Keyes, thank you very much for sharing your life in books. Thank you. It was a pleasure. In our next episode, Laura is joined by the best-selling British novelist Sebastian Fawkes, who talks about his career as a journalist, his love of Jane Austen, and the moment when he finally had enough space to write. I had what I'd always wanted, which was a room of my own, time on my hands, no telephone calls, no meetings, just me and my imagination, and the whole world, past, present and future, to write about. That's Sebastian Fawkes, next up on My Life in Books. If you haven't yet subscribed to the series, please do. And if you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a star rating or a review on iTunes. It helps other people to find the podcast. Thanks for listening.